Hey, it's Kathy with Rocky Retirement. And as promised, today's Friday, and so you'll be getting to listen to Henry Shapiro's Retired Excited. I know you're just going to love this as much as I do. And don't forget, you can still listen to Rock Your Retirement, where I'm the host, and those shows are released on Mondays. Welcome to the Retired Excited Podcast. Retired Excited, the show where we give retired and want-to-be-retired folk a look at how great retired life can be. Here we talk to men and women who are happily retired and loving their life. Together, we will delve into what retired happiness really looks like and how anyone can achieve it. Here is your host, Henry Shapiro. Hey folks, Henry here at Retired Excited, the show providing inspiration for people who are nearly retired, newly retired, or say they're never going to retire. Here we talk to retired people doing things that make them happy, things from stamp collecting to cruising, from dancing to touring the world on a motorbike. We talk to everyday retired people who are living the life they want, and we talk to a few professionals to get expert advice, and I chip in with some of my own experiences. Well, hi there, everybody. It is Henry with episode number 23 of Retired Excited. Now, if you met today's guest at a party or whatever, you'd get no inkling of the astounding accomplishments he's had through his life. After the usual round of jobs early on in his life, Peter Glover uh, established his own car sales and mechanical services business, and the business developed successfully. In parallel, Peter began a career of going fast. He raced motorcars and motorbikes. His mechanical experience allowed him to build rally cars, and which he did, and went on to win a couple of major races here in Australia in rally, and he also competed in other forms of car racing and did really, really well. He retired from that life and bought himself a large sheep and cropping property in Victoria, and he enjoyed success there despite really having no hands-on farming experience up to that time. I asked him about that success and he said, well, he'd been in business for many, many years and the challenges were more or less the same. The main challenge was thinking ahead and planning ahead. Farming is not an easy business, but he managed to do it successfully until he had an accident and hurt his back. That stopped his farming career. And you'll hear what happened then. So really he retired for a second time and What he did after that second retirement is really what I wanted to talk to him about. Since his teenage years, he'd wanted to fly and never really had the opportunity through life. And uh, as I said, he was doing other things. But a chance encounter while he was out on a rally with someone who was a pilot rekindled his enthusiasm. And with his wife's consent, he said, "Okay, going to do it. And he was in the position to learn to fly, which he did successfully and bought himself an aeroplane. So the bulk of this story is about what you need to do if you want to learn to fly. Learning, selecting an aircraft, the costs involved. Luckily, he's still living on his farm and he can hangar his plane on the property. This is a really interesting story. He talks about the regulation here in Australia, really more suited to large passenger planes than light aircraft. He considers them to be very much over-regulated. So listen in, like I always uh, advise you, Think about the personality traits 
and talents that Peter has that have allowed him to take the course that he has in life. Just compare that to yourself and think about, okay, could I do these things? Could I learn to fly? Is that something I could do? Is it something I'd like to do? Now, I interviewed Peter on his farm, and we start by him explaining just where the farm is located. Here we go. So welcome, Peter. Nice to have you here on Retired Excited. Just to start, I normally ask people where we are. Can you explain where we are? Well, we're in uh, Western Victoria, a little farming community by the name of Berry Bank. Mm-hmm. We're here on your farm. What, do you, what are you doing on the farm? We're here on the farm. Um, I do as little as possible on the farm since I've retired, but mm-hmm. I do have a very good tenant who grows wheat and barley and canola and um, he does all the hard work and takes all the risk. And you get a minuscule amount of money out of I it. I do get a, <laughs> enough to survive on. Excellent. So let's go back to the early days. What were you doing during your working life? My working life, my goodness. Well, I said, when I left school, I left school for all sorts of reasons and moved to Sydney and I, when I was just turned 18. So um, I worked up there as a cash van salesman selling cake all, all, the way, all around Sydney and up and down the coast. Um, and then... Um, a bit later in life as you were... Later in life, well, when we got married, I was a a rep for Philip Morris um, in Tasmania, actually. And then um, we came back to, we came over to Victoria. I ran my own businesses as as a car yard come garage for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in latter life, I became a farmer. Right, so you didn't have a farming background? No, no farming background at all. It, it's, uh, although... Not not directly. It's in in our blood. There are a lot of farmers in our in our family, but mm-hmm. not associated directly with me. Was it a difficult thing to come into farming and work out what to do and how to do it? It was. Yeah, there's a. It's a very steep learning curve, but uh, I enjoyed it. So take it all in, and I'm a good listener. So when I want to know something, I'll I'll ask the right questions of the right people. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I did. I did find the first couple of years nerve wracking. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, farming's a lot different to running a cash business in the city mm-hmm. because your income's very sporadic, and you're never really quite sure whether you're actually going to get any. Well, it's going to be income or outcomes. So. <laughs> yes, it could more like more outcomes than incomes. So that was a big, big um, learning curve to to adjust to that. I, I tell you. I'm a little bit the same. I was a city kid and I was farming just for 10 or 11 years. Yes, you you, you have to be in front of it. I think that just associates to business planning. And I, I mean, I'd been in business myself for um, 30 years, so I was used to planning ahead, probably not as critically. I mean, in farming, your mistakes carry over in for another year. So yes. you really want to make sure you get it right, otherwise you've got no income for the year. To the, into the second year, which yes. is really bad. So planning on farming is, is very important, very critical. Uh, what sort of farming is this? What, what did you do? What was the enterprise? Well, when we, when we came here, we, we built up numbers. We were basically a sheep farm to start with. We, we were running 5,000 sheep, cropping five or 600 acres for, for income, and the, the cropping was for income and for feed. For the sheep, yeah. um, but we came in at a time when 
wool prices were absolutely not there. And so, and we had good wool. We had 18 micron fine wool and and good sheep, produced nice crossbreed lambs for the fat lamb market. But gradually I was going to go over to cropping because it was more, more money in it and it was more instant money. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I did... I had a back injury, which stopped me farming, and I was going to sell it, but I was made a, an offer to lease, um, which meant we stayed on the property, which I really wanted to do. So that's what we've been doing. So that was a sort of a retirement in some ways. You came from the city and ret- retired here to the farm, but it was more hard work than, you know, probably hard physical work than you'd been doing in town. Yes, the f- the farm work... Well, I was used to working six days a week. Yes. I mean, initially I always worked seven, but on the farm you work seven. And when things have to be done, you've got to be there to do them, So, especially with sheep. So uh, yeah, it, I did, I did have, have to um, have a bit of a turnaround in, in um, the hours that I put in, but I enjoyed it. it was, it's, it's good. Um, what was the thought process from being a, a city business person to being out on a farm? What turned you from one to the other? Well, what, while we were in in um, in Melbourne, I had bought a little farm property north of Melbourne, and uh, we had a hundred and twenty sheep. And our daughter was going to a private girls' school in Melbourne, and and um, and I just got to the stage where I thought that she needed to experience other than city life. Yes. I'd, I'd grown up with a bit of both as a kid. I'd lived in Melbourne and the country. And um, so I thought, well, a, a country experience would be good for her. And um, I'd try something new. What I really want to talk to you about and what the point of this podcast is, is to talk about what people are doing after they retired. So in a moment, we'll just talk about what you're doing after you leased the farm, which you could say was a second retirement. But I just want to go back because I know you're really interested in mechanical things mm-hmm. and in particular things that go fast. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about the things that you've done in that respect? Well, as a kid, I was I got interested in Speedway because kids that I went to school with in Richmond their parents were drove midgets on the speedway, the old Tracy Speedway, and occasionally I used to get to go to the speedway on a Saturday night. And so I'd always had an interest in that, and I loved cars. I was car mad. Always wanted to be a pilot, though. That was my my whole thing in life from very young, that, that uh, pilot was what I really wanted to do. But when I got to uh, about... 19 or 20, I, we, I was living in Tasmania and the speedway had just got going down there and I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll I was learning to fly, but I thought then too I'd, I'd t- a cheap sport was this speedway racing. So I did that for a couple of years in Tasmania. How'd you go? Oh, I, 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 got, I did very well. I mean, I think the first race I went in, I got a place and, mm. and I just went on from there. So... No, I had a very successful two years, and then we came to Melbourne and uh, didn't do any more with that, and actually took up motorbike riding. So I was riding desert rallies and enduros and things like that, and then the Repco Rally came along in 1979, and I thought, oh, that'll be fun. So 
And mate and I built up a car. We went in the Repco Rally, which we finished. And uh, you, you, just to break in, you, you built the, the race car yourself. Tell yeah, us a little we, bit about, well, we, a bit about the car. Well, we the car was a a, a Volkswagen and um, a, a Beetle. A Beetle. Yeah, mm. the fellow that I was partners in with it would only go in the event in a Beetle. He wouldn't go in in anything else, which which hurt us badly in the competitive <laughs> side of things during the event. But anyway, it, it got round, and we, we had a great time. There, actually, there were three of us in the car. We had to get a third person fitted in the car. But I built the car from scratch and, and built a third bucket seat for the back for the extra person, and um, we, we were quite successful, really. So moving on from that one, what what was your next endeavour? Well, I I did I bought an S S Mark II Escort then, which I rallied for four five years, and uh, in the process of rallying, I was got sponsorship from BF Goodrich, and they insisted that I went off roading. So I actually off roaded the the Escort for three years, and in each year I won the title for my division. Fantastic. And I had many outright um, places, uh, which were, was totally unexpected for a Ford <laughs> Escort in those days, uh, racing against off-road buggies and four-wheel drives and the whole lot. Oh, so on, on purpose-built purpose-built off-road. Built off-road. Yeah. Well, all, all the events I went in were national events, national yeah. off-road championship events. Each year I finished, uh, I won the class, and I, I was finished in third and fourth outright for the titles. I was very happy with that. Goodrich's were very good to me in those days. They total sponsorship for that. But the bribe was that if I did off-roading, they had to sponsor me to do rallying as well. So I did both. It was a very busy time, but I don't know. This is. Am I right in saying this is while you were running the business as well? Yeah, running the business as well. It was a busy time. Yeah. And and that, that got a bit out of hand, actually, and... Um, so I gave it away. I gave away rallying in 1984, and then a friend came along and said he thought I should have stuck with off-road racing and that if, if he bought me a buggy, would I keep racing? So he bought me an off-road buggy, and I got sponsorship from Hamilton's for uh, Porsche. So the Porsche Racing Workshops were doing the motor for me. So I kept off-road racing and in that and... Actually, I went to Bridgestone then for tyres, and they sponsored me until 1990. When I gave up again, I just found that they were expecting a lot of of my time, and I was still trying to run my business as well as do the racing, and so I gave that away too. I've always had a thing that I only do it for fun, and if it starts to get beyond fun... Unless someone's paying me a lot of money, I do something else. And then you built yourself a Peugeot. Tell us about that one. Well, in 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 mm. um, two thousand and three, they decided to have a rerun of the one of the famous Red X trials, which was a nineteen fifty three Red X trial around Australia rally. The mate and I that did the a rid, the Repco rally in the VW. We decided we'd build a Peugeot 404, have a go at that. And uh, so we bought one at the Wreckers and built it up from to a, to a really good standard of rally car. And we went in that event and won it outright. Fantastic. Mm. Does, does, 
when you say built it up, does it have to have the original motor and so forth in it? Like, was it a Peugeot motor, or have you got some really? Yeah, high? no, we 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 used a Peugeot motor. It, it, it had to look like the original motor, which it did. Yeah. Um, but the car had to have a rally ca- a roll cage and and uh, substantial things to to make it strong and safe mm-hmm. and fairly quick. So you won the rally, which is yeah, amazing. Won the rally because mm. you probably hadn't ridden. Sorry, you probably hadn't driven competitively for a little while. Oh, well, I hadn't driven competitively for about fourteen years. What do you put it down to? What What do you put that success down to? Apart from natural talent and good looks. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm I, I'm very competitive when 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 the. When the flag drops, someone says go. You hear that in the background somewhere, go. And uh, I generally go. Right. And I, I really do enjoy driving. I love going fast. So I, it, it's just one of those things that if, if, um, if I ever get the opportunity to drive, I do. So you won the, the Red X Rally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now you're back to farming. At, at this stage, were you doing the work on the farm? No, or you, you, no I'd, your back I'd was retired by, by, that then, okay. by, that, by that stage. Normally I say to people, um, were you looking forward to retirement? Now, you retired because your back was sore, mm. but were you looking forward to retiring? No, I had no intention of retiring, um, but I, I I couldn't keep going. So either I had the chance I, I would either sell the farm or and move on to something else or or retire here, which is what we chose to do. As you were convalescing and considering all this stuff, what did you think you might do after your retirement? It hadn't occurred to me. <laughs> I really didn't know. I, I, I mean, I was in the bowling club, and I'd, I'd, I think at that stage I was secretary or president of the bowling club. So I had plenty to keep me occupied. Right. I can't remember that far back, actually. <laughs> <laughs> We're all getting old. <laughs> well, now we come to the part that I really want to talk to you about, uh, and that is that you rekindled your love of flying. So tell us about that. How did that happen? Well, I'll go back to the beginning. When when I was in my early 20s, I did learn to fly. But I never got. I never obtained my licence uh, I did obtain, I did fly solo, and I did obtain my radio operator's license, but I, and a restricted license, but that was it. And when we got married, financially was out of the question, so it's always been expensive. And I'd sort of put it on the back burner all those years. As a lad, it was always my aim to be a pilot. I wanted to be a commercial pilot, but uh, due to circumstances with education and money it didn't happen when I was young so when I was in the the Red X trial in 2003 I was staying in a house in William Creek near Lake Eyre and it was the pilot's house who owns the airfield up there his name's Trevor Wright and uh, he was sleeping in the next area that I was sleeping in and we got talking about flying and different things and and he said I should go back and finish my flying. I came home and mentioned it to Robin, my wife, and she said, oh, well, you might as well. You always wanted to. So at, at that stage, I took up flying ultralights. I got to the stage where I I was qualified to 
obtain my pilot's license. And my instructor said, um, you should be flying general aviation, not ultralights. You're fully qualified for it. Can I, I just want to break in there. You said, I took up flying ultralights. And it, like a throwaway phrase, mm. it's not as easy as that, is it? Tell us how, if someone thinks, I'd like to fly, how do they take it up? How does it work? Well, the the first thing you've got to do is be medically fit. It's not no point in going to learn to fly if you can't see past your nose, and you're not and you're not medically okay. You you need to have a good medical check. Mm-hmm. For a ultralight license, it's virtually if you are capable of driving a car, you're capable of flying an ultralight aircraft, which is a a smaller, slightly smaller plane than than a say a normal Cessna, and it's a, just a two seater plane. My vision of learning to fly is that there's lots of mathematics involved and the navigation, and it's not just being able to control the plane. Well, you're correct there. Um, you can learn to fly without any of that, but you just can't go anywhere. <laughs> Right. So, <laughs> that makes it more awkward, yes. <laughs> if you want to fly into um, uh, aerodromes that have radio and things like that, you need a radio operator's licence. But all those things you can do as you go along. You don't have to uh, immediately fly and be able to navigate or read the weather or anything like that. But when when you come to do all those, you have to do all those courses for your flying. So you, you virtually become a meteorologist apart from anything else. And there is a there is a, a little bit of arithmetic involved. <laughs> arithmetic, uh, but yes. these days uh, you get a lot of assistance with that, with the sort of um, uh, technical programs that are available to you. So most people don't do it in their head anymore. They use a, a, a program of some description. So you can learn to fly without doing the navigation and all that. You... But can you get your solo license without doing that stuff? That's correct. Yes, you can. You well, the the first thing you do when you are learning to fly is you um, you you learn to take off and land. So you're not going anywhere. You, right. You're on the airfield. Your first ten or fifteen hours usually are doing circuits, what we call circuits and bumps. So you're doing circuits. Uh, you're doing flying in the training area building up to your solo experience. So uh, for about 15 hours of flying, most people take about 15 hours now to to go solo. And it's after that that you start to do cross countries and and learn all your forced landings and all the things that... But am I right in saying that the after that bit, you've still got an instructor with you? Or are you uh, doing that by yourself? No, you, you... until you until you go solo and get a restricted license, you have to have the instructor with you. But yeah. once you've got that, you then can fly in the training area, a local flight sort of yes. thing. Uh, and in 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 doing that, you are then starting your training for your cross countries. Well, your first cross countries, you have to have an instructor with you, and then to get actually obtain your license. You have to successfully do cross countries on your lonesome, and not get lost, and not get lost. <laughs> and 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 if you're getting a, a PPL, which is a private pilot's license, 
which is a basic commercial license, really. You then have to fly into uh, Essendon or and Moorabbin solo, and so that's pretty serious. Then that's pretty serious, and that 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 gives you your your um, your PPL when you pass that test. Don't get lost on the way back. <laughs> Are there any little stories or any incidents that you know about, um, whether your own or other people? Oh, not really. The 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 funniest one really was when the instructor, who his name's Graham Boatman, Graham said to me one day, "I think you should be flying general aviation and get your PPL, not your not your ultralight." He said, "You'll get that anyway," and. I was doubtful about it at the time. We were actually at the airfield and I was going to do some ultralight flying. Anyway, he said, well, what do you think? You know, And I said, oh, you know, don't know, but I guess you're right. Oh, good, he said, get in, we're going to Melbourne. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I've got to pick up someone at Essendon and you can fly me down. So, oh, I haven't flown a Cessna for, you know, for mm. 30 years. He said, oh, you'll be right. And uh, and then and and also then he said, oh, and by the way, we've got there'll be three on board going down and four coming back. I said, oh goodness, (laughs) I haven't flown with four people. No, you'll be right. And that's how Graham is, and a terrific instructor. He he he's one of the best in 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 Australia, Mm. and he's got a very big reputation as a a fine instructor. So um, I did that and just went on to get my license and. Am I right in saying, being here on the farm, you've got your own airstrip on the farm? I've got an airstrip, and I converted a machinery shed to a hangar, so the ply- I bought a, a Cessna 172, and that's garaged at, at all times. At home, on the farm? At home, yeah, yeah. So that's a quick walk out the back with your bag, and off you go. But for most people, they're not in that situation. Let's say they live in the city. Mm. How do they cope? What do they do? If I was not... In the situation I'm in, and I lived in Melbourne, I wouldn't own a plane. I'd just hire one when I needed one. Hangarage is expensive, you know, three to 5000 a year, yeah, and an aeroplane is not something you want to leave out in the open. So you can do a lot of flying around in a hired one for four or 5000 a year. Right. Uh, plus insurance is 3000 a year. It's not cheap. Peter, I think the general public would think, oh, flying an aeroplane is a really expensive business. And you've talked about hangarage and fuel. But just tell us a little bit about the, the cost of learning to fly for a start. The cost of learning to fly, it, 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 there's an hourly rate depending on what aircraft you're learning in. But if you go basically learning in a, in a Cessna 172, at the moment it's about $260 an hour. You'll have to run up about forty hours uh, flying. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it's a little bit less when you're solo, mm-hmm. but if you're paying paying for an instructor, ultralight aircraft. So just are a that's lot about cheaper. ten. That's about ten grand. Two hundred and sixty um, by about forty hours, more or less ten <clears> grand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ultralight's a bit cheaper. Ultralight's uh, uh, probably eighty dollars an hour cheaper. No, much cheaper. Oh, much cheaper. And you, for for an ultralight license, you virtually do the same course mm. as you do for a, a private pilot's license, uh, but you do not have to have the same medical standard. 
So, that, and there are variations now on those licenses with medicals. But uh, if you want to fly full PPL, you have to have a full class two medical. So that's that's the cost of learning. Yeah. And then if Hangridge, and we've spoken about that. What about a plane? If you want not a new plane, but you know something reasonable that that you can rely on. Well, if you if you sort of think, well, I, I just want to. A Cessna 172, say you can take three passengers in a 172, limited luggage. You can buy them now from about 20000 up. Okay. Depends on their condition. So yes. uh, it, you, you might spend thirty or 40000 on it to bring it up to condition uh, that you require. They use 30 to 35 litres an hour of fuel. They cruise at about, 100, about 180 k's. So that's that's... Twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. Plenty of cars cost that much. Oh yeah, I mean a hundred thousand will buy you a, a really good one. Right. So yeah, it's not. It's not extraordinary. Not extraordinary. No, I no. mean, if you if if you look at the value of fancy cars today, no, there, there are a lot of aeroplanes you can buy for sixty, seventy thousand uh, dollars in the ultralight field. Uh, you can buy a brand new Australian built. Ultralight aircraft called a Jabiru for hundred thousand fly away cruise. Some of them cruise at one hundred and twenty knots. And the difference with an ultralight is it's only got it's two a two seater. Yeah, it's okay. a two seater. On top of that, of course, you've got insurance. Well, I pay about three thousand a year for insurance. Maintenance is you've got to have a, a hundred hourly or one a, once a year or one hundred hours is the maintenance issue on planes. Yep. And plus oil changes in between that you can do yourself. Uh the hundred hourly usually costs two thousand. So you you know, to own your own plane and run it, you're looking at it around two hundred dollars an hour. Well, folks, you're gonna have to work all that out. <laughs> but it's it's achievable. It's not well, it, it, really extraordinary price. No, it's not ridiculous. And if you look at what people pay to play golf, it's not that bad. <laughs> no. And they have to have expensive equipment. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Some people can play well without expensive equipment, but most need the good stuff. <laughs> so, no, it, it, it's horses for courses. Uh, sport is expensive if you want it as a sport. If you can use it in any way for for business or, or you might want to go and learn to fly and become an angel flight pilot which you can yes. do depending on where you live and your circumstances. Well, let's pivot from that to some of the reasons and the people you've met. Have you met any characters along the way? I have met plenty of characters. One, one in particular that, that we know, his name's Jack McPherson. He's currently 89, according to him. He's really 90, but he said he'll never be 90. Um, he's still flying. He's got his own um, ultralight, uh, an aeroplane called a Technam. And... Um, he he is a character. We met him on a on a safari trip round Australia with um, flying. He was flying on his own in his own plane, and um, currently we're good friends. He lives on the north coast of New South Wales. So when did he start flying? If he's that age now, Jack's a, a taxi owner and taxi driver from Sydney. Right, Jack. All of his life, actually, he's got a really interesting life. He um, he was actually on the Sydney in World War Two, and on the Sydney's fateful voyage, when it was leaving Sydney, he developed appendicitis. So he's really the only survivor off the Sydney. But he was only sixteen. He he put <laughs> his age up two years, and his father signed for that to get him in. 
into the Air Force. So they, he'd forgotten all about that until he went for his pilot's licence. And when you, they did a police check on him, they said, oh, hang on a minute, you're really only 72, not 74, as you've stated. Oh, no, I'm not on 74, said Jack. No, 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 <laughs> produce your birth certificate. So um, so that was when he learnt to fly. When, when, when he, he was 72. Fly, he was 72. He, he got married at the end of the war. He, he spent most of his wartime in Darwin in the Navy. He married his his uh, childhood sweetheart, I should say. They lived around Sydney. He was driving cabs from the age of 14 in Sydney, <laughs> sitting on a box. His wife died when he was 72. He thought he was 74. But he was driving past an airfield after some months after his wife had died. And he, there was a big sign with an arrow pointing into the airfield saying, learn to fly. And he thought, gee, that's a good idea. <laughs> so in he went. And then he went from there. He bought a he bought a Cessna 150 and he said, I wore the tyres out in three months on that, <laughs> doing landings. And I, to this day, he is an excellent pilot. I would go anywhere with him mm-hmm. at 90 years of age. So you can do it late in life. You can do it late in life yeah. as long as you've got your eyesight and reasonable and, health. And good health. I'll tell you another funny story. The other A few weeks ago, we were at the bowling club in Yamba, and on our table we had Jack, 90, still flying, mm-hmm. and we had another fella, 94, <laughs> flew Lancaster bombers over Germany in the war, stopped flying when he was 21, stopped flying. So he was flying Lancasters, <laughs> bombing Germany in 1944, in his, 20s. in his 20s. I need to wind up, but I've got just three more questions for you. Why do you do it? What's the best thing about flying? I just love it. You love it. I mean, it's it's just one of those things. You, I think it's a, a rare privilege. You know, you you get up there in the in the sky and look around you, and you, you're not quite as free as a bird, but <laughs> you're as close as you're ever going to be. I think too, it, it's a mind game. Mm-hmm. It's something you ha- you have to keep your mind on the ball and up to what you're doing all the time, so you don't. You don't go flying with a blank mind. You have you have to concentrate, concentrate, yeah, and you have to be prepared. So you have work to do. There's a lot of homework to do to go flying. So oh, I think it's a big responsibility. You know, mm. I go flying with with my wife Robin and other passengers at times. So you don't take that lightly. So that's the good thing is that you can get around free as a bird. All those things. And what about the less good things? What what do you not like about flying? I think the our controlling body in Australia is called CASA, and um, they've over-regulated the, the whole thing. I don't think for private flying it should be as complicated and it, or unreasonable as it is. It, there is too much. An ordinary person will not remember nine-tenths of what, what you learn I mean, there's always something in the back of your mind that you think, oh, I do know that somewhere. To be able to do it in Australia is the best place in the world. We've got the best climate. We haven't got any huge mountains to to cross. Our coastlines are extremely beautiful from the air. So there's a lot of pleasure involved. Lastly, and this might have to do with flying or not with flying, could be anything in, in life, someone who's coming up to retiring or has just retired, 
What would your advice to them be? If you've got your health and some money and you want to go flying, ultralights are the way to go. Uh, it's a lot more economical. It's a lot, very affordable in terms of you can buy an ultralight for fifteen or 20000 It's good safe flying. The regulations are a lot less involved and you can fly anywhere. You can fly up to 10,000 feet. You can fly into controlled airspace. You just have to have the equipment accordingly. So I would recommend that you did that. If you're in Melbourne, there are the airports that you've got to go to are on the fringes. You can go down to Tyab or you can come out to Bacchus Marsh. But they've got terrific instructors. Most days you want to fly, you can. It's certainly a good pastime, and and you can enjoy it with your your spouse or your your children. Peter, if people are interested and want to learn a bit more about flying and all about it, what uh, what resources should they look for? Well, it's it's pretty easy to get all the information you need on the internet. For ultralight flying, is it's the Recreational Aviation Association of Australia (RA) we call it, and they've got a website. They do have a magazine in the in the news agents mm-hmm. um, called Recreation Aviation. That is your best place to go. Air Services is CASA's portal. Any information about private pilot's license, full GA license, yep. that's general aviation license, is available there. Or just ring a flying school at, at anyone at, at your closest airport. Talk okay. to an instructor there. Always very helpful. Flying is a good fraternity. Very friendly people. You'll enjoy. Take it up. Uh, Listeners, if you want some more information or you want to get in touch with Peter or know a bit more, contact me. And as always, henry at retiredexcited.com. You can email me and uh, I'll put any message through to Peter. Peter, thank you very much for your time. And uh, for all our listeners on Retired Excited, we thank you. Look forward to many years of happy flying. Well, I think you're going to have to agree with me that Peter has packed a lot of action into his lifetime. If you're on the website, if you're on the Retired Excited website, you can see some photos showing you examples of the cars that he's raced. But going directly back to flying, Peter explained how he was reunited with an earlier dream, how he went on to turn that dream into a reality. And during the interview, I mentioned how surprised I was that learning to fly and flying is really not out of the reach of many of us here in the population. It seems a fully functional light aeroplane is really just similar in outlay to a medium-priced luxury car or certainly a serious four-wheel drive. Peter has very particular views, as I said earlier, about regulation of private flying in Australia. He considers it to be heavily over-regulated. Well, just in the past few weeks, and here we are in, uh, what are we in? We're in July 2016. Air Services, or CASA, have put out a news release to say that they are putting off hundreds of their workers. Now, whether that results in a lessening in safety or a speeding up of regulation and the speeding up of approvals, I don't know, but uh, it's an interesting move on their part. So once again, did you note the particular talents and traits you would need to have to enjoy flying, to want to fly, and to make that a reality for yourself? Certainly not everybody can afford to do this, but I would dare to say a great, a greater proportion of the population than I at first thought can be involved in flying. During the interview, Peter mentions the Recreational Aviation Association of Australia and also Air Services, also called CASA, C-A-S-A, 
Now, I will put links to those two organisations in the show notes. He also mentions just to check any flying school if you want some further information about learning to fly yourself. Have a look on Google. You'll find an airport close to you, I'm sure, where there is a school and you can get some more info. If you do fly, if you'd like to fly, or if you just want to comment on Peter and his accomplishments, whether they be in his racing career, in his business career, or in his flying career, just leave me a comment in the box at the bottom of the page or contact me directly on henry at retiredexcited.com. That's all for today. I wish you well. Thank you very much for listening. Keep well, keep healthy, and I will see you next week. I to give that a go for sure. Um, Ian Mabbitt was terrific. That was interesting. What a good idea. Oh, wait, I wanted to thank you again for listening to the Rocky Retirement Show. If you're a new listener, a good place to start is episode 116. This explains the six pillars of retirement lifestyle and our general philosophy. Episodes 1 through 236 can be thought of as an encyclopedia. These are topics that may or may not be interesting to you. You can listen to the ones that you're interested in and forget the rest until the issue becomes an issue for you. And that's okay. I actually don't recommend starting with episode one and working through until the most recent. That's actually not how the show was designed. Of course, if you want to do that so you can see how the show changed over time, you're welcome to. Now, starting in August... Actually, August 31st of 2020, we changed the format of the show. The monthly episodes starting with 237 follow a real retiree from her pre-announcement through her first year of retirement. There might be bonus episodes, but we're committed to monthly. If you've enjoyed any of our past shows or the show that you just listened to and you want to support us, you can do so in any of the four ways. One, share this episode with a friend or family member who needs to hear it. This is the most important way that people find us. Since our audience is typically older, we grow by having our listeners share our episodes with others. Two, subscribe to or follow the show using whatever podcast catcher you're listening on right now. Now, if you're listening on your computer, you can listen on your smartphone by going to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, Spotify. I mean, I believe on all of them. If you can't find us on the podcast catcher that you'd like to use, send us a note on the website at rockyourretirement.com 
and we'll make sure that we get on your favorite podcast app. But basically, what you do is you download the app and then you search for the show. And when you find it, you'll hit subscribe. Make sure it's the Rock Your Retirement Show and that you hear my voice when you listen. Um, actually, there were some episodes where Henry Shapiro was a guest. Uh, we, we actually downloaded some of his episodes. So if you hear him, it's probably still the, the same show. There were maybe 34 or 35 episodes back in the beginning that we hosted on our show uh, when he decided to leave podcasting. Number three, how you can support us is by leaving a review. Whatever podcast app you're listening to normally has the option of leaving a review, either a written review saying how great the show is or just with stars. Five stars is typically the best. And of course, we're shooting for those five-star reviews. And if you tell us why you like the show, what you liked about it, it's actually easier for other people to understand what the show's about. A lot of people, when they find our show, they think it's about money. And of course, by now, you know that it's not. Number four, if you'd like to support us financially, of course, we're always appreciative of that. Just go to rockyourretirement.com slash support, and it will take you to our page where you can support us financially. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Bye.